0: Now, you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book
2: served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready, to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscope. Hello, and
0: welcome back to the Appendix End Book Club podcast. I'm your co host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that satrap, Jeff
1: Goad. Go East! Go East! right
0: and with us we are very honored to have this week the reverend dak ultimac publisher of the very first dcc fanzine crawl and a frequent guest on B- the blaze against bandwidth actual play on twitch and youtube hello dak hi hey everybody so dak we always like to ask our guests you know to sort of establish rapport um
2: how did you get into gaming Ah, uh, man uh probably elementary school some at some point uh we were playing uh we tried to play D&D, but we really didn't understand it. We, it, we started with the Holmes box. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, we started, uh, what really helped us understand it was playing the dungeon board game. Sure, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And then a new kid came in town, and he knew how to play. He actually knew how to play, and so he was our first DM. His name was Sam, and uh, he was one of our first DMs, and, uh, and first real DM that knew how to play. And he sat us down, we started playing, and blew our minds. Like, mm-hmm. what is this? And then and then I became a DM and then started playing lots of advanced D&D, lots of basic D&D, and then through the 80s, started buying and collecting all kinds of other different role-playing games from, like, Game Designer's Workshop and just a bunch called Lulu. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And what specifically led you to DCC and publishing for DCC?
2: Um, right around towards the end of, after 3rd Edition, 4th Edition, when 4th Edition came around, and pretty much everybody was pretty disappointed in my group with 4th Edition. So we started looking in other games, and one of the ones that really stood out was DCC. And uh, Joseph Goodman, who's the publisher of it, was um, really help, helpful and um, um, encouraged, encouraged a lot of people to publish for it. And so I, 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 and I, I, I've been making zines for a while, for just various other things, punk rock stuff. Um, and, uh, I just thought like, and I've always wanted to make something for gaming. And so this was like an opportunity and Joseph kind of pretty much, cr- uh, just encouraged everybody mm. to do something. And so it was real easy to get my foot in the door, just like publish something. And, and I, I was working on it since the beta, the beta edition came out, was right. out for about a little over a year. And so I was ready working on stuff.
0: Right. I I find the the zine useful to this day. So I'm just so glad Mm -hmm. to have those issues from the very beginning. You know, it's just to kind of show the way as to what could be done. You know, because obviously a lot of systems get very much tied up to um, this, like, canon stuff. And and Crawl was really showing that, like, bringing us back to sort of the DIY roots of gaming. So that that was
2: really appreciated. Yeah, I have a background in, um, I actually went to school for graphic design. So Mm -hmm. that kind of helped me. Um, in that aspect, it was kind of easy for me to. I understood layouts and stuff like that, and so uh, mm-hmm. that that was helpful. And I also worked in books. I worked at a bookstore, Borders Books, long ago. Oh gone. yeah, sure. And I worked for them for like three and a half years, so I was actually I understood the logistics of distribution and stuff. So I had a I had a, I had some skills that um, that helped me uh, crank out the zines when I was first doing them.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And now looking at the sort of the field, you know, there's so much out there now, um, oh, yeah. do you feel like in some ways, you know, without, you know, putting a big halo around yourself, do you feel like in some
2: ways <laughs> that you sort of pointed the way
0: a little bit or for, for what could be done? Um,
2: like, I, I definitely wasn't, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I was far from the first zine uh, for any role playing game. But like I first started, I was already collecting um, the OSR movement was starting at that time. Sure. And so mm-hmm. I was already collecting zines from uh, Tim Shorts. Uh, sure. There's this guy, Christian, out of, I can't remember his last name, but he did a zine called Lovitar. Levi, Levitar. Mm, that was one right, of right. That was super influential, and right. Um, he's doing
0: those single sheets that he would mail directly to people and stuff like that. I know, he actually yeah.
2: did full zines. There are oh, full zines, zines, but Tim like, Shorts was doing like uh, the manner yeah. yeah, yeah. Manor, yeah, and yeah, Gothic Manners. yeah. And so that but, stuff, and like when I saw that stuff, I was like, oh yeah, this is easy. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And so that's what got me doing it. A um, l- lot of people tell me that I I I inspired them, and I've heard that I kind of people say I inspired them or started the movement, but that's. Obviously not true because there were definitely zines coming out. Even there there I forget the name of it, but it was a a zine out of also out of California that's dates back to the 70s, that's are still made to this day. I think
0: it was at Alarms Excursions, maybe. That one. That one. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I would say yes, but I would add an asterisk to that, which although <laughs> you did not invent the <laughs> the D D zine or the OSR zine, Dungeon Crawl Classics specifically had a gigantic zine community yeah. explode from yeah. that game. And there are a lot of popular OSR games. There's Sveihander, There's Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. There's Lamentations of the Flame Princess. But none of those other games had the same kind of zine culture come out of them that Dungeon Crawl Classics did. And I'm not going to say that the Reverend Deck Ultimac is the reason why that happened necessarily, but I do think that the Crawl fanzine... Um, definitely paved the way and showed people like, oh, this is something I could do. Yeah. And because I think it happened at such a critical moment too, because it was so early on the scene, like it showed up there at the same time yeah. that the, the game, game showed up. Yeah. yeah. It just, I think, communicated to everybody like, oh, this is a thing you can all do and we encourage it. And mm-hmm. next thing you know, everybody who loves this game is suddenly also a creator for this game. Yeah. And it was so exciting.
2: Mm-hmm. I try to encourage other people to make scenes. That's for sure like i want everybody try it it's just like and uh there's funny zines out there that are just like all hand drawn and just like poorly constructed but i think they're amazing and Mm -hmm. i and i encourage i i definitely encourage people to uh make zines or make or even self-publish just Mm -hmm. yeah
0: right and i think it's it's important yeah it's the fact is very intriguing intimately linked with specifically DCC. I mean, obviously the other there's games, as you said, for OSR movements, but specifically DCC has this, this vibrant culture around it. Um, there is a big self-publishing culture around like 5E, for example, but it's very much sort of related to the canon of 5E. And whereas DCC just seems to be like, let a thousand flowers bloom and just go in all directions. Um, so, so sort of in that regard, uh, what were some of your uh, you know, you were talking about gaming for a long time, you were collecting all that. But what, what what kind of fictions um, that was, you know, sort of really inspiring you
2: during this whole process of gaming or even before you started gaming? Um, to be honest, lots of the, the basic stuff like Tolkien and uh, uh, and even the D&D official stuff like Dragonlance and all that stuff and some a bunch of comic books, uh, Moorcock, mm-hmm. library. it's it's like the common stuff, but like dying earth, all that stuff, um, even though it's like almost cliche to talk about those specific ones, those were really good ones. And they really mm-hmm. did kind of like reading Moorcock or uh Fratford and Ridden to Gray Mauser, really like I oh, yeah, this is like I am reading D stories. Mm-hmm. And and just like even uh do, the dying earth stuff. It's just like, oh, this is another way we can it 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 made it cool to get weird just yeah. by like reading some of that stuff. Um uh CL Moore. Sure. Um her uh what's it I
1: don't know? Jarello
2: Yes.
1: And that, that
2: that um that stuff was amazing. And uh yeah. and, and uh and just like the visuals reading, reading these books. And, but I was like seeing it in my head and it was, it looked fantastic in my head. Like it's, and those things definitely influenced how I play. And are there any
0: particular works that you, whether the obvious ones, or maybe someone that are a little bit off the beaten track that you say, Hey, you know, you as a gamer really should read this and want to really open your mind or something that you can really sort of pick from to really just like, you know, open up your game.
2: There's quite a few things. Um, uh there was the Battle of the black tom that came out sure, a few Victor years LaValle. ago yeah. and it was a and it's uh it's basically um the author uh took a H.P. Uh, Lovecraft story but retold it from the perspective of a black character that was uh he's one of the characters in the book but it 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 re, it retold it retold that the same story but from a, a different perspective And um, and it just um, it showed what it what it did to me was um, show that you can take problematic source material like H.P. Lovecraft and kind of, uh, you know, because there was a lot of racism and stuff like that in it and just like kind of take it back and reown it. Now that's and you're seeing stuff like Lovecraft Country and things like that. And that's a good one. And um, and um, there's some contemporary stuff. There's a um, a compilation called uh, I think it's Swords and Dark Magic. Um, I think John Stratum is the editor for it. But there's a Eric Stevenson short story in it that's part of the whole Malazan Empire series, which mm. to me are hard to read. But this particular short story was about just a band of mercenaries that stumbled into a town, and then they uh, and then the town kind of trick them into uh, staying inside this old keep and while they're in the old keep they get attacked by a bunch of like wraith type creatures and that's it, it was, and then and then they got pissed off and they went back to town and they slaughtered the town and uh but it was just such a but like that's something that would happen in your dD game if right, you're playing right. with certain certain gamers that we like to play with especially dcc, they like to try to break the adventure as much as possible. Right. And, uh, and, and that was, like... <laughs> I
1: don't know what you're talking about. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so reading that story, that short story, that was actually really, uh, that kind of uh, validated the, the, the style of D and D or style of DCC that a lot of us like to play, which is just wreaking havoc and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Sure.
0: So. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, well, thank you, Dak. And so let's talk about what book we're reading this week. This week we're reading Fred Saberhagen's Changeling Earth, also known as Ardna's World. And it's also sometimes collected in the Empire of the East, the third part of the Empire of the East, if you're reading in one volume. Um, so what editions is everybody working with? Jeff?
1: So I've got this boring ebook. Um, it's the 2010 Empire of the East Omnibus. And the uh, it's by Tor. And the cover, uh, I, I don't have an artist who is um who is specifically cited as being the artist for this, but um it looks like there's a dragon on the cover, but there's not a dragon in the book. It's just like flying lizards. And then there's like a like a big owl on it, which I'm guessing is like Sturgy for something. I don't know. It like it it's 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 a very it's a nice piece of art, but like it doesn't really kind of fit my vibe for what's happening here.
2: There you go. And Dak, what are you reading? Um, I when I read I had also a collection of, of the first three books. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what was on the cover because I actually checked it out of the library because I had a hard time finding the book. But okay. I, I recall it was one of the weird um like 60s, 70s covers where it was uh, just they picked some random sci-fi cover and just like threw it on the cover because it was I think it was more of a uh a, uh, what do you call those? Landscape. Just, it was just more of oh, like yeah. a picture of what's going Right, right. I think it's
0: it. one where he's wearing like the fur vest and it's, like if you, it's a wraparound cover and you come by on the back, there's like a tank on there or something like that, something funky yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's like that. the Empire. Yeah. That's what, <laughs> that's
1: what Adam had in our book club. Yeah, the
0: Empire of the East one. Yeah. All right. Well, I have the 1973 DAW Ooh. with the Tim Kirk yeah, cover. that's a great cover. And um, uh, I said in the book club, but this, uh, book actually has a little bit of a history because I got it on eBay as part of a Fred Saberhagen lot that was apparently uh, John Eric Holmes' estate sale. So this is John Eric Holmes' Blue Books, Blue Book D and D's personal copy. Although there's no sign, you know, a bookplate in there or a signature in there. So if I ever see any of the rest of the Holmes clan, I'll have them all sign it. So there you go, and it's in pretty good shape too. So there you go. Um, all right. And we always like to uh, pick a sort of high-gaxian word of the week, you know, some weird, pompous word that get, uh, Gary next might have <laughs> picked. Um, but Saber prose is actually pretty straightforward, so it's kind of hard to find one. Uh, but Adam came up with a word for us, so uh, here we go.
1: Caravansary.
0: Caravansary, which is the scene of the major set piece of the first third of the novel, and that's an inn, or with a, usually with a central courtyard, that's set on major caravan or trade routes, specifically in North Africa and Central Asia. So caravansary.
2: Caravansary.
0: All right, That's so we're in one. the courtyard of the caravansary, Dak and Jeff.
2: And <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of this book? I think, in hindsight, that a lot of these were actually very mundane stories. And uh, what was interesting is how they, uh, it actually took place in the future, mm-hmm. and so, and so I, 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 it, that wasn't. That wasn't clear, but when the tanks start showing up, like, what is this big monster thing that they're talking about? What is this big monster thing? And it turns out to be a tank. I right. thought that was pretty funny.
0: <laughs> like, an atomic tank, right? Yeah. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> um, yeah, and I think um, it's interesting because I think there's a lot going on, but again, as I just mentioned, I think that Saberhagen's prose is sort of very straightforward, sort of, it's not poetic in the way that, like, Jack Vance is or even Tolkien's right. is, so it sort of disguises a little bit the scope of what's going on in the story a little mm-hmm. bit. And so he's like, yeah, oh, it's it a sounded story.
2: very contemporary.
0: Mm-hmm. Like all the names are also to you know, Rolf, Catherine, the names are pretty, you know, even like the, some of the big villain, the big villain's name is John, John Aminor, yeah. <laughs> right? The evil <laughs> emperor, yeah. and, and his, his high constable's name is Abner, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it read. So like, if it was written today, like in the, you know, the 2000s, it would, it would, uh, it would sound contemporary, but right. It would, it wouldn't, I don't think it would hold up because it, it, even it, because a lot of the concepts and a lot of the ideas were at this point kind of dated. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but back then, I'm sure it was actually kind of mind blowing, especially in the early 70s. Sure, sure. Um, Jeff, what do you think?
1: I really enjoyed this book. I thought, I thought the overall, I thought the trilogy was really strong. I feel like this was the strongest of the trilogy. Um, it was short, it was fast paced. Um, I really like, I was just, I was engaged. I had a great time reading it. Um, yeah, overall, I was really happy with it. I thought the explanation for what Ardna was and then the introduction of this Orcus character was really cool. Um, I thought that that was all incorporated really well. Um, yeah, overall, I really enjoyed reading this.
0: Mm -hmm. Hoy? Mm -hmm. I agree. And um, to sort of build on something that you mentioned there, uh, Dak, um, I think he was actually drawing on some stuff that was very contemporary. Um, and so that could potentially seem dated. This was written in 1973. So it's still the height of the cold war. Right. Yeah. Um, so people are still concerned about nuclear destruction, which is actually what the story hinges on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I keep on harping on, this is sort of towards the, the tail end of the Vietnam war. And so, um, you know, is not so clumsy as to say like this is a one-to-one correspondence. But the people of the West are very much more like, even though they're like the freedom fighters, they're also very much more like the Viet Cong. They fight at night, they're guerrilla fighters, right? They have to avoid the superior air power and military power of the East, um, and but they're also transitioning to becoming a more formal military force with you know Duncan's army and stuff like that, which is kind of reminiscent of like both the Tet and the 1972 Easter offensives of the Vietnam War um yeah. and so they're they're pushing they're still not as militarily strong as the east but they're starting to contend with them on their own terms and so th- i think Saberhagen was aware of these things again without being like oh this is exact cor- correlation between this and this um and so these are things that we you know we have you know it's not that long ago but also it's in the ancient past in some ways you know 40 50 years suddenly now is something that's you know ancient history for a lot of people now um But I did very much appreciate the sort of very straightforward pose because I didn't have any problem visualizing like where things were happening in relation to each other, which sometimes can be a problem with sort of more epic fiction when they start using all these like made up terms that, you know, where, you know, the blah, 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 uh, you know, and it's like, oh, that's just the word for road. Okay, great. (laughs) 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 I get you now the, the, uh, the golden path. Okay, great. It means road. Um. But yeah, no, I enjoyed it. I thought um, it brought a lot of things to a culmination uh, pretty effectively. You also see that there is uh, character development if you've been reading the books individually but uh, as a series. But Jeff, as you also pointed out, it works more or less if you just picked it up at random. You can still follow what's going on, even though you know there's more story to it. Right. So.
1: Yeah, that's something I mentioned in the patron book club in case anybody's listening like it's like Jeff didn't say that. That's something I mentioned before we started recording this in the patron book club. And specifically in the context of that, I was talking about how all so we have this character of Catherine, who's kind of the romantic interest of Rolf in this in this final book. And she kind of, you know, we're, in, we're introduced to her in this story. And part of me was kind of like, I don't I didn't feel like I needed a romance thrown into the end of it. But what I did like about it is if we had read the entire trilogy, we've been with Rolf for the whole thing. So we can kind of experience what's happening here through the eyes of Rolf. But if you're picking up Changeling Earth and you have not read the previous two books, which a lot of people did at this time, that was part of the paperback culture of the time, we also have this character of Catherine who's traveling along with Rolf, who's introduced in this book. So all of this stuff is new to her too. So if you're somebody who's reading this, you can experience this book through the eyes of Catherine. So it is kind of cool that we have these two different characters who also have a differing level of knowledge. And I'm guessing Fred Saberhagen wasn't intentionally crafting it that way, but maybe he was, I don't know. But I think that it's a very – it's it's cool to have two characters like that because it also gives each – whatever your experience is as you're going into this book, it gives you somebody whose eyes you can view this world from.
0: I think that's a good point. And I think Rolf himself supplied that role in the first book because he's just a naive farm boy. He's the, he's the Luke yes. Skywalker in the first one. I don't remember if there was a character who did that in the second book, played that role. Um, I don't think
1: there really was. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I think, but I do also remember that there was a change in publisher. So this was the first one published by DAW specifically. So that also makes sense. And it was written like, I think, three or four years later. So I I would say, Jeff, that he probably did intentionally do that and, and, you know, intentionally created a character who could help us come back into the story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
1: I'm guessing Dodger said we need romance. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'm guessing that's all it is, and then right. it ends up being a a bonus that we have a character who we can then see this through. Right? Yeah, uh,
2: maybe. I, well, what, read, what do you think? I, yeah. I read the whole, I read um, all three back to um, back, like in a week, and uh, so it was it was a fast read for me, and um, so the all three of them blurred together. So hmm, I really sure. didn't. I couldn't really. I can't. I can't remember how the different parts added up. So um, I didn't, I I didn't notice that. I didn't notice any, because it, it came off as a book in three parts. Basically, Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. We had the
0: advantage or disadvantage of having read this almost literally a year apart from the last time we we read Uh, the second book. So, yeah. uh, So I think that was noticeable.
1: Um, and yeah, almost two years between our first and second book, and then almost exactly a year between the second and third book.
0: Right, right, I'm a little uh, less cynical than you, Jeff, about uh, Catherine being positioned as uh, the purely romantic character. Um, I think it's also Saberhagen showing a couple other things, which is that um, very much he pushes back, even though there's like these entities, godlike entities, people of enormous power, you know, Rolf has uh, you know, he's interacting with it. He kind of pushes back on the idea at least in this series of there being any kind of chosen one right these are all like sort of people who are very grounded um the the so-called good guys are all more or less grounded people even the magicians are people who have to like work within the world they're not like above and beyond the world the way that some of the the evil overlords in the east are and that um it's kind of showing that at no point can rolf ever do anything alone he always needs help and that Catherine, you know, initially we think of her just like, you know, okay, she's the damsel in distress, but she is, you know, very practical. Uh she's very much his partner in the whole stuff inside Ardna when the child is. She's to, like, competent
1: can, with the bow and an arrow. Competent with the bow and
0: arrow. Um
1: but also she's used, I think, to juxtapose against uh, Charmian as for well. For sure, for sure. Because like, so there's this great scene that just cracked me up when, when I, I forget if it's Rolf or if it's Chup, I forget who sees this, but there's a moment where Charmian is riding on her horse into battle and her hair is just flowing in the wind. But whoever sees her is like... There is no way that her hair isn't like tied up because that's not practical for what she's doing. So they're like, obviously, she's casting some kind of an illusion or a glamour to have her hair flying in the wind <laughs> behind her, which tells you so much about this character. She's so obsessed with how she appears, and she's and and she also knows that her appearance is what gives her power over people. So she's very very fixated on it. Whereas we had this character of Catherine, and there's this one uh, bit that I highlighted where it says, Catherine had none of Charmian's glamour. Her youth and (sighs) health was marked with human awkwardness and imperfection. She was too complete and varied to be unreal. So here, like, she's very very real. She is a real person with normal with like with like real human flaws. She isn't a perfect beauty and that actually almost kind of makes her more attractive to Rolf and kind of makes her like a more relatable realistic person. There's kind of this idea that like this this perfect beauty is there's there's something wrong about it. There's something off about that. Um and if you and and there's almost like a, um, like a like a I'm, I'm I'm not finding the word I'm looking for, but there's like a goodness and like a virtue in the fact that like Catherine is just kind of one of us.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's true. I think that the East sets itself apart because they all want to transcend humanity. the The various like warlords, right? Whereas mm-hmm. the the people in the West are depicted as more or less very sort of grounded characters. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? That.
2: Um. I think that's where I was getting the mundane stuff from. I guess, mm-hmm. like, because there was definitely there was something mundane about the books. Like, it's like, oh man, these people are just ordinary. Yeah. And uh, and I that's that was that these was aren't just, Conans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These yeah. aren't
1: Merlins. Yeah, yeah,
2: they're yeah, they're a bunch of zero level characters just like trying to survive. Right, and
0: you know they develop competence. Like Rolf is definitely more far more competent than he was. Uh, you know, the first book, but you know, in real terms, third level maybe by the, by the <laughs> third level, yeah. fourth level by the by the last book, maybe I don't know. You know, he, with a lot of luck, uh, you yeah, have a lot of luck if, in, in DCC terms. Um, you know, I really also appreciated sort of the groundedness uh, of the physical environment. Like, you always know where you are in the Caravansary during the, the, those schemes that's going on there. Although it did also remind me a lot of like um, the King Who uh, Dragon Inn. Um, movies so some of the, the wuxia films where they're like the various factions are competing against each other like the eunuchs and stuff like that and so people are in this inn in the middle of the desert and they're trying to like hide their identities while they try to do crazy stuff and there was a there was a uh choy hark remake called just dragon inn so that reminded me of that um and then when they're escaping and they're being pursued by the easterners you know they're very much like it's very real again. It's like, okay, well we can only go this far. And if we go into the day, the lizards will see us. So we have to like travel by night. Um, and we have to use the terrain to help us. And even when they're escaping, like the, the bad guys kind of know where they are. They, they, they each can see each other. They just can't catch up to each other. Right. And it's just like, um, again, it's, it, it creates a constant level of anxiety, um, which I think is, it's pretty cool. So.
1: hmm And in the first two books, Ardna is a presence, is a power, but isn't a character. Ardna becomes a character in this book, and then we're also introduced to the character of Orcus. Dak, like, what do you think of the characters of Ardna and Orcus?
2: I can't remember Orcus to be yeah t- t- to be honest, but Ardna tripped me out because it was definitely an influence on you know the AI thing and like mutant crawl. Yeah, classes. sure, sure, yeah. So that yeah, was hugely
1: cool. yeah. yeah. I mean, That's that that stood out. Yeah. How long has it been since you read them?
2: Like two years ago.
1: Two years? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just like right um, Orcus is yeah. Orcus is the if if you recall, um, when we when we go back into the past and like we were and Rolf is kind of given the story about how all this stuff happened, and we're seeing like the missiles going off and the nuclear warfare and stuff like that. When basically they pulled the switch and like turned Ardna on and then like Ardna introduced magic to the world, they were trying to do this before all the bombs went off. But one of the atomic bombs that was that had just been detonated as it was starting to expand is when this went into effect. And then that, that mid-detonation atomic bomb then became sentient and that became Orcus, who became the king of all demons. Yeah, Which is really right.
0: wild. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then what's really fun about that is Orcus doesn't understand how he came into being. He only knows that he did. So then ultimately, in the end of the book, when Orcus and Ardna are finally fighting and Orcus is about to destroy Ardna, Ardna's like, you don't really understand what you're about to destroy. Because when you destroy me, and then suddenly Orcus realizes, like, oh if I kill Ardna, then things go back to how they were and I'm going to continue to be a detonating (laughs) atomic bomb, which is exactly what ends up Uh, happening.
0: Right, right. So Ardna does like a little Obi-Wan on him. You know, (laughs) (laughs) strike him. There's also some other little bits I thought with Orcus that were pretty interesting. Um, So when he, uh, as Adam pointed out, when he first is attacking Ardna and can't quite break through his defenses, he has to go and recharge. So he kind of rises into the upper atmosphere and basically becomes like a solar panel and starts recharging from all the sunlight but (laughs) even even before that earlier in his story he travels out into space into like the moon and stuff like that and then he realized that he's a nuclear explosion but in the grand scheme of things he's so small in the galaxy he's not like he's like a a black hole or like a you know yeah uh, you know a white dwarf star or something like that and so he's like nah i'm going back to earth where i can lord it over everybody i'm not going to be out in the cosmos even though i'm this nuclear explosion (laughs) Exactly.
1: So, like, on the human scale, Orcus is kind of cosmic horror, but then Orcus has his own moment of cosmic horror where he goes out and is like, I'm going to live on the moon. And he's like, oh, God, I'm so tiny. I hate it out here. I want to go back where I feel big and strong.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, you know, Orcus is an OSR blogger. No, no, (laughs) Or
1: or I think of, like, a hipster moving to New York City. You know, it's like, you might be the coolest kid in, like, your small town, but then you move to New York City. (laughs) Yeah. that's, that's right, not right. gonna happen there right,
2: right um yeah do you know if there was any precedence of, Ar- of the name orcus because like you know D D people will only know right giant, um it is like a,
0: a roman i mean yeah he's not depicted like the D orcus but right. he is there's is a roman like god of the dead or something like that not necessarily evil but like a, a god of the dead so i think um you know a saber like the name obviously i think there is a precedent for this actually influencing D and D though, in that m- remember how in D and D you're never supposed to mention Orcus's name or he might appear or something, to you, and they're always like, "Oh, nobody knows the name. Only like Wood and John Ammonor know the name of Orcus, right?" And they don't. They're like loath to speak the name, right?
1: And also, I so what, one thing that's interesting about the Empire of the East's inclusion in the appendix N is only this third book is listed in the appendix N. The first two books are not. Uh, so one potential reason for that is maybe when gary gygax was listing out the things that like he had been inspired by maybe he only included this book instead of the entire trilogy because maybe he just knew he included Orcus in the monster manual and he's like well i guess i'll give a shout out to change the earth because i know that's where i got Orcus from <laughs> maybe maybe right. i mean you
0: can see how this book would appeal to them because as, as a war gamer like all like the sort of military stuff is like very like Vi- you know you can you can visualize it you know like oh here's yeah. where the army's moving here's how it's going here's how it do it so i could see how it would appeal to him as a book regardless of you know whether it's just that one little thing
1: now Dak, you were, were you, did you edit the dcc uh, Saberhagen,
2: the empire of the east book for tcc yeah 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 and okay. that's and that's why i read the i i
1: when i was assigned it i i, I just crammed i crammed the books Gotcha, gotcha. So, what are some of the things that DCC Empire of the East includes that you thought were some pretty cool ways of gamifying some of the stuff in the fiction?
2: The zero level character aspect, you know, bunch of ordinary folks getting kind of caught up in all, caught up in it all. Yeah, um, that's that's like off the top of my head. That's all I could think of, other than Arna, who was yeah. an AI basically. Mm-hmm. But that was more Mutant Crawl classic, so. Right. I mean, but still a patron, obviously.
0: Right. So, um, and the idea of patrons, and I I guess we talked to Jason and, and, you know, the discussion was why this was specifically a DCC, um, when they created, uh, you know, Empire of the East, why it was DCC rather than MCC. And I think he was just saying like, the DCC just had that bigger base at the time that would be able to, you know, have that appeal. Whereas, you know, MCC was a little bit more specific in its sort of world building.
1: But also, I mean, Empire of the East, like, you've got wizards. Right, exactly. You've got wizards. You know, in MCC, you don't really have wizards. I mean, you kind of do, but you don't. Right, right. Um, I feel like the character classes and Dungeon Crawl Classics jives more with the world of Empire of the East. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Than does the, you know, hunter-gatherers of Mutant Crawl Classics. Right, right.
0: Which is, I guess, also why Radiation Crawl Classics is another look at different kinds of apocalypse, right? So that's a little bit more, like, near-future uh you know mad maxi type stuff than far far future uh um what am i thinking of um what's the one that we read with the guy who rides the moose um Hi- Hi- heroes, Hi- journey. Journey? Hi- heroes yeah. journey so a little bit oh. a little bit less hero's journey a little bit more uh you know mad max for radiation crawl classics whenever that comes out so yeah yeah in terms of um you know since we're now specifically talking about gaming Ah, uh, what are the things, uh, Dak, that you think would be interesting to sort of, uh, you know, incorporate into your gaming? Whether it's a one-to-one yank of something, or if it's just a concept, or something like that, if you were to look at this book.
2: Um, I think it's it shows that it's cool to add tanks, yeah, and guns mm-hmm. and and AI into your fantasy game. I sure. Think, I think that it shows it proves that you can do that, and that it's okay. Like I got a lot of grief for the firearms issue.
0: Right. Right.
2: And, uh, but, <laughs> but I personally didn't care. And, uh, because I've seen, because there's precedence for that too. There's been, right. like, as Changing Earth's uh, shown, that, uh, it's okay to, cause like a lot of, a lot of this old fantasy stuff where, uh, modern characters from modern Earth being transported into some weird, fantastic, uh, realm. And so, uh, so there's nothing wrong with, you know, crashing a UFO in mountains mm-hmm. in your, in your, in your DCC game. And there's nothing wrong with uncovering an old ancient atomic tank that's underneath the mountain. And, you know, it, I think that's, it's, you should be encouraged to do that kind of stuff in your, in your, yeah. you shouldn't mm-hmm. be stuck with, Oh, it's gotta be medieval fantasy only.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And that's a funny thing because D D was drawing on all this, but somehow, and somewhere in that line, right, say around 1980, 83, suddenly D&D sort of became the default for what fantasy is, as opposed yeah. to all the things that D&D drew upon to create itself, you know. And so that's kind of funny and, and very much codified. And I think that's the thing that we've really learned on this project, right, Jeff, that there was a real sort of codification of what fantasy could be in a lot of people's minds somewhere in the right. process of like, you know, around the eight, you know, earlier mid 80s, I would say.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing that I thought would be kind of fun to steal. It's a very small moment, but I just love this when um Anita, the young seeress, is uh doing her divination spell and then Ardna possesses her and starts like telling them to go north into the wastelands. And the people around Anita are like, "How do we know that you're Ardna? Like how like how we know that we're, how do we know to trust you?" And then Ardna through Anita says, by its fruit, the tree is known. And I love that line. And I'm totally going to steal exactly that line. <laughs> the next time I have an NPC that the PCs don't trust and want to say, why should I trust you? That that NPC is going to say, by its fruit, the tree is known. And <laughs> just because like, it's such great circular logic too, because essentially you're saying, um, you will know that you can trust me because when you do trust me, you're going to get the result you want. So, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. Right. I love that.
0: Well, it's a very D&D thing, right? Because, like, you know, you as a, as a GM of various systems, you always know in the back of your mind, you have a rough idea of what your NPCs are doing. But it doesn't matter. Your PCs will always be like super, super paranoid and like ready yeah. to kill them at the drop of a hat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right?
0: yeah. and, so, and so you just have to have a little fun with that. Uh, but what do, what do you think, Deck, on, and with the cards that? Do you have the characters that are always like uh, your
2: players? Or are they always sort of adversarial towards your NPCs? or are they Always, of, yeah. yeah you know? <laughs> and, and the only thing I do is like I, I try to think of it. Well, this is more about how I run NPCs, but I, I try to play a character that I like saw on TV or read about and and kind of imitate that character's demeanor, basically. And that's, that's the only thing I'd actually do. Uh, the only thing I do. Uh, for my part, I really liked
0: some of the um, the use of the terrain. I, I would love to use a caravansary as opposed to your typical just tavern, right? Because this is a thing. It's, it's an interesting building, right? It's got three wings to it. It's got multiple levels. So this is just like, you know, so much room for shenanigans. I mean, that first, you know, heist and then their escape, like, you know, they're surrounded by the guards in the east and they hear the troops on the roof and they're like pretending that they're going to escape through the roof, but they also already have the plan to escape through the floor. Um and then you know go out the you know the other wing so uh, letting like your players to like really scope out a set piece and make their plans around the actual physical reality of a set piece I think is a really cool thing to do
1: and then also looking at how this book may have inspired early versions of D and also feel like we can draw potentially a pretty straight line between this book uh, this series and some of the cringier parts of early D and D specifically I'm thinking about those early Issues of Dragon and Dungeoneer magazine, where we have the female versions of the classes, where there's like the female thief, the female wizard, the female fighter, and essentially they'll have a lower hit die, a slower XP progression, but they have seduction over men magics. <laughs> and and like to me, like I like I love the character of Charmian, but also that's kind of her her thing is like her power is that like she can like. Use her seduction mag- magic to get power over men, and the character of Lady Charmian I do really, really enjoy. But I do feel like that's also, in terms of gamifying that kind of stuff, is something to be real careful with because it can, yeah. it can come off as very, very awkward and very misogynistic.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, it's definitely something you have to be careful with. Even the end, I thought was fun, but also could be a little cringe if you're looking at it in one way, right? That Charmaine is now completely beholden to, to Chup. It's not that she doesn't deserve it, because she's been, like, you know, a horrible person yeah. the whole time. But suddenly, like, she's dependent on Chup, Uh and they have that weird love-hate relationship that they have. Um, it, you know, looking at it a certain way, it could be a little ache. I mean, I thought it was fun, but it could be a little ache, yeah.
1: Yeah, I thought it was fun too. I mean, she was she was an evil character who's getting her comeuppance, yeah. and also, but what was also nice though is Chup has like real genuine tenderness for her in the end as well. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think it would have been ick. It would have been much more ick if he was like lording it over her and being like, "Ha ha ha, you're mine now." But that that's not what it was. Right. There right, was exactly. there was genuine compassion and tenderness.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, as you say, there was definitely some like very cringeworthy stuff in early D and D and sort of, uh, you know, fantasy of that period. And I find there was a real, a real minimum of that. I mean, there's still, you know, it's still like, as you said, Dak, it can be dated, you know, it's definitely a book that was written before 1980. Right. But it's not, you know, like very regressive. Like even when, even when we're talking about like Chup's attraction, I mean, not Chup, um, Rolf's attraction to Catherine. Again, it's, as we said before, it's very grounded. You know, it's like, you know, two young people. It's really more about their proximity that they become attracted to and the, the, the fact that they're working together rather than suddenly yeah. like, oh, she's a babe. I'm a guy. Of course she has to like me or vice versa, you know?
1: <laughs> and there is some very realistic stuff thrown in there too. Like I, So, you know, Charmian puts that curse on Catherine so that like whenever they all get gropey with each other, she turns into like, a, she starts looking gross and old. And at one point, when they're like in the the dungeon of um, underneath the mountain, and they're like hanging out with Ardna, Rolf is like, "Hey, Ardna," and Ardna is kind of busy and is kind of distant. And he's like, "Ardna, Ardna," and then finally Ardna comes back, and he's like, "What is it, Rolf?" And he's like, "Yeah, you know, every time I try to grope this girl, she gets ugly. Can you help?" And he's like. <laughs> nah, man, like, I've got way too much stuff to be worrying about. (laughs) And, like, it's just such a dumb little moment, but, like, it just reminds you, like, they're young, they're in love, even though the world is coming to an end, potentially, like, they're still sitting here, bored in this place and attracted to one another. So that part also felt very kind of real to me.
0: Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. Um, and I think there was also, if you were going to run an evil campaign, I think you could do worse than look at the actual empire of the East as a way to do that. Like, you know, the different warlords and like, you know, they had kind of all have to cooperate because they're all in fear of John Aminor, but they're also like, you know, vying against each other. And then, you know, at least to that one great moment when, uh, Abner gets, you know, uh, clonked and then stabbed, you know, by, uh, between Charmian and Chup. And he's like, he wondered, even as the sword came butchering between his ribs, how he'd ever thought that the East whose essence was treachery could ever stand, right? So I thought that was a really smart, interesting moment. So if you want to like that change of pace and run an evil campaign, um, that would be fun. And then you had mentioned uh, the sort of uh, total murder murder hoboism of um, Dak, of the uh, of the Steven Erickson story. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's players, you know, they'll do that and they'll ultimately collapse in on themselves if you're running an evil campaign. But it might be fun to run one for, you know, a limited stretch of like, you know, 8 or 12 sessions just to see what happens.
1: I also dug how as the books were progressing and we're getting to like the the eviler and bigger and badder villains, we end with John. Right. Who's just kind of like a dude. And like like at this point we're we're expecting that like the the empire the emperor of the empire of the east must just be this like horrific monster. And it's like, nope, it's just a dude named John. And they even specifically say he's not particularly attractive or unattractive. He's like, just kind of a guy. And I don't know, there's something that I thought was pretty pretty wild about that.
0: Right. And he specifically says, right? And he's like, yeah, were you expecting something else? You know? (laughs) (laughs) But that's what makes him more frightening, right? To Charmy and all that. The fact that he does seem sort of very bland, right? So, what do you think of that Deck, would it be interesting to have, like, all these people... Is it, like, an interesting switch when you have, like, your characters fighting through all these, like, increasingly bizarre villains to finally meet the last one who's just, like, seemingly very bland? Would that work in your campaign or, like, would that scare them if they suddenly see this guy? seems completely ordinary. Yeah, I don't
2: know. I don't know if it would scare them, but I, I... Yeah, I think some people would be disappointed, maybe. I don't know. Because, yeah, he didn't come off as a... At the end, uh, the boss... the boss monster.
1: Yeah, (laughs) your big monster is just like your your big final level boss monster at the end of your twenty twenty level five e campaign is now just a kobold. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. yeah. Now, Deck, were there any particular characters that you remember being really drawn to that you feel like if you were going to play one of these characters in an Empire of the East campaign, that you would want to play? um i've always
2: liked to keep things simple i've always liked the luke skywalker so rolf would have been the easy one for sure yeah yeah i like i like those. those those are what attract me to these kind of fantasy stories is like an ordinary dude me you know getting kind of sucked into this situation Mm -hmm.
1: kind of your choose your own adventure character yeah (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I want to be sturgy from The Feathered Folk and just be like, Rolf! Rolf!
0: How <laughs> about <laughs> you, Hoy? Um, well, you had mentioned earlier, we didn't see Miwik, but I always liked Miwik a lot. Um, Miwik's awesome. Yeah. We, he was mentioned
1: once, but yeah. then that was it. Yeah. I th-
0: um, and I always like Chup. I don't know that I would do a good job playing a character like Chup, but I do like Chup um, just because he has that, um, you know, he, he kind of knows who he is, you know, in a way mm-hmm. that some of the other characters are, are like coming into their own. Um, but, um, I feel like there's other stories there. Like they, even like, uh, Rolf mentions how, um, Catherine's kins, kinsmen, they don't look like soldiers, but they all, on the other hand, they also look very like competent and smart, you know, and, and tough. And so like, I feel like that's what's the sort of pleasure of this particular book is that, um, I, I forget if it was you, Dak, that were mentioning that like Rolf is doing all this stuff and, and Jeff, you've probably mentioned this as well. They're doing all this stuff, but there's all this, all this other stuff that's happening, off screen. And these are just, they're they're people in this world, but the world is going on and all these things are happening on the world. And as you mentioned, Jeff, since you're not particularly interested in like the war stories as such, this is still a way to have characters be in something that's larger than life, a huge war or something like that, you know?
1: Yeah. And I also like how the magic of the East and the West are different. You know, in the East, their magic gives them access to demons. In the West, their magic gives them access to elementals and like, and and part of that is because the demons are allied with the east, and the elementals are allied with the west. Um, and I just kind of think that that's like kind of a cool world building thing as well.
2: Like elementals are usually associated with nature, and uh, the demons are usually associated with um, the supernatural. This yeah. and the supernatural, Eva. right? Right? Yeah.
0: Something's yeah beyond beyond arcane. Whereas yeah, exactly.
1: And hoy in our patron book club you were talking about your particular enjoyment of a of one kind of elemental that was introduced in this book Oh yeah book. the
0: prairie elemental I thought was terrific because you know we always think about we think about the four classic elements right but you know, Abner is like, like, oh, you know, we've gotten past the the desert elemental, we'll be okay. And it's like, but what is, I'm trying to remember what this is about. Prairie elemental is something I need to know. And then you realize that they're like they're altering distance, and so that they're just like on this treadmill of uh, they're trying to chase Rolf, the the Empire's troops, and they're just not getting any closer. It's because the Prairie elemental is like stretching the distance, and they're only traveling like you know, two thirds as fast as they normally should. Um, so I, I like that. It's this little thing that can affect your game. It's not a game breaker, but if the smart use of like, okay, I've got got enough power to summon one thing to help me, and it can do one thing for me, and that'll buy me some time or something like that. So it's it's it really much very much seems like a smart PC decision in there with like a low level character. That's what it seems like in in the context of this book.
1: And both in the Empire of the East stories and in the Elric stories, it makes sense. But I also really like that the. That like summoning elementals and using elementals only works when you're surrounded by that particular element. Mm-hmm. You know, you you get a water elemental when you are summoning elementals in the ocean. You know, but like I feel like in D and D, like you just have people like summoning water elementals in dungeons, and it's like <laughs> I, I I I like really specifically rooting the elemental in its element.
0: Yeah, yeah. And again, I think, uh, Saberhagen is very smart about those kinds of things, environments. Uh, he really lets you picture what's going on. And I think it's unusual that he's talking specifically, oh, it's a prairie. It's not this whole landscape they're fighting. It's not something super exotic. It's not a jungle. It's not the black mountains of the, of the second book, right? They're in a prairie, it's flat plain, but then there's these little things that they can use to take advantage of it. Like, oh, here's a little like gully or an arroyo or something like that that they can use. Um. And I think as dungeon masters, uh, you know, or game masters that we should look at, you know, things that we're familiar with and make them a little bit strange and, and things that the players can work with, like, you know, whatever our environment happens to be, you know, um, you know, I'm from new England, but Dak, you're from Southern California. Right. And so, you know, things that we can use that, you know, give the the world a little grounding, a little specificity, um, I think really makes it come alive. So, all right. So we're, uh, coming up on the, uh, you know, 10, you know, 10 minutes ago, Dak, are there any uh, major thoughts that or things that we have missed completely missed that you said, no, you should, you should have noticed this about the book or something no, like that. I can't think of anything right now. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, any other last thoughts about, you know, either the characters, the setting and like that, that really, you know,
2: spring out at you. No, I mean, I, I emphasize probably the most important thing, which is the ability to cross the genres
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I
2: think that's really important in fantasy because that is is fantasy Mhm
0: mm-hmm.
1: Do you hear that, Andrew Sternick? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Here we go.
1: One of our friends a Hard Time. There we go. Um,
0: (laughs) There you go. And uh, so I know you're reading a little ahead into uh, the book that he did many years later, which is uh, Ardna's Sword, right, Uh, from 2006. Is there anything that, is that something that's worth uh, looking at? I know there's also the Swords swords series, which is in between what takes place in the far future of the Empire of
2: the East world. No, I actually haven't started this yet. Okay. Or if I have, right. I already forgot it because I, I, I picked up, I have this book and I picked it up. Um, gotcha. I grabbed it for here, but uh, to, for the show. But um, uh, I do know that they, in the Empire of the East DCC book, they they deliberately uh, chose to exclude part four. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and
1: for the record, by they, we mean <laughs> the people who sold them the rights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, right.
0: Well, that's maybe something like, okay, we'll see how this goes. And yeah. uh, hey, if it's great, you know, but, um, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, I, I, I think I, it
1: was cheaper just to focus on the three oldest books for sure.
0: For sure. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, I guess it's a little sad that Empire of the East sort of, uh, you know, are the DCC properties. I, I like it, but it's sort of a little bit in between the cracks, fallen a little bit in between the cracks yeah. probably because of the timing of everything that's gone on, you know, with COVID and everything. It's just not the one that has gotten the sort of the attention that like the Lankmar books or the upcoming
2: Dying Earth book. You know, well, is also getting. in
1: fairness, it's a much less iconic IP. Yeah,
2: sure, and I sure. think that's the biggest. Like most people don't. I mean, lots of people are familiar with uh, Fred Saberhagen, but they're not familiar with this particular series. Right? They may in know the appendices. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. Kind of,
1: Lankmar yeah. and Dying Earth are much more iconic IPs than mm. Empire of the East. And uh, frankly, it, like when they announced that they had a big, a really big announcement the related really cool to cop, like right? a new Appendix N line. I was like, oh god, they got Elric, didn't they? They got Elric, and then they were like Empire of the East, and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and like I've been really enjoying. I really loved the books, and I thought that the product was beautiful. But I, I was surprised that that was the one because mm. it just didn't, it it didn't seem like it had a big enough name to support right. it. But it's it's a it's a great supplement. Mm. And my thing with the DCC, like Lankmar, Dying Earth. Um, Empire of the East supplements is you don't even have to play in those worlds. They just have so many fun like extra rules that you can take and swap out. It becomes so modular that it helps you kind of create the DCC flavor that works best for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I do I think mean, just, This is yeah. a great cover.
1: Yeah, oh, the yeah. Ian Miller
0: cover. It's amazing. <laughs> right. And I do think it's, it's that they did a good job with um, it's recognizably DCC but it's not like they hammered these properties into DCC. They said, Oh, we'll make DCC work with these properties, you know? so I think that's a, that's a slight difference that, you know, sometimes it might be harder to get away with. Like, I think it would be difficult to do any five E things without it being recognizably five E, right. If like, if you had, if they had some IP that they wanted to, you know, license for five E, um, all right, well, we're almost out of time, Deck. Are there any projects that you're working on that you'd like the people to know about that are coming up? Um,
2: yeah, I'm still I'm still making crawls. Okay. I know some people some people have asked, and it's been like three, maybe almost, pushing four years now since I've released one, but I've been working on them. I have a couple that uh, I 13 and 14 are mostly written. I just gotta um, do a little bit more playtesting and iron it out. Mm-hmm. but um i'm still working on crawl and uh uh i also worked on x crawl so uh, right. x crawl classics is coming out and i worked yeah. on that too and that's gonna be good very cool very, very cool. cool
1: and also the original crawls are now being sold in packs right or is that already done no we saw yeah
2: yeah you, you could buy the 12 packs i don't have any on me right now but um uh uh yeah i'm leaning towards that being the only way to get them eventually Mm -hmm. um but yeah the packs are uh are in distribution so wherever you get dcc game and any game shop that can get dcc they can get the the crawl packs. so you can tell your friendly neighborhood store to and ask for it they're at it's, it's, it's 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 out there
1: and if the firearms one just makes you really angry, then just throw throw that one out the window, but use all the rest of them. Throw that one out the window and then buy another one so your set stays
2: complete.
0: <laughs> That's one you might have to print more than one copy of, you know, like, so that one's going to be available separately so that people can get really mad about it and burn it, but... <laughs> There you go, and, and Dak. Uh, how can people find you out there on the interwebs if they want to? Are you on Ooh, social media, Reverend or... Dak? If you look okay. up
2: Reverend Dak, you'll find me. It's right. I'm out there. I'm not. I'm not on too many social media right. things, Makes sense. But, uh, <laughs> but 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 you can find me. I'm out there, and i, I I'll I'll occasionally visit um, some of the DCC um, social spaces like the Discord or the Reddit. I'm in there once in a while. I'll poke my head in there and say hi. There you go. Yeah. All
0: right. Um, I should get our list of uh, books for upcoming episodes, right, Jeff?
1: Yes. So our patrons get to vote on the books that we are going to be covering. So, Hoy, what are the books that are up for vote for episode 120?
0: All right. So uh, the loose theme this time is metafictions. And so it'll be uh, Peter S. Beagles, The Last Unicorn, Jonathan Carroll's Land of Laughs, Michael Enders' The Never-Ending Story, and William Goldman's The Princess Bride. Pick one of those. I know which one will make Jeff happy, but I'm not saying. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one of them will make me very, very, very happy, but I think we already know which one is right. people win. will have not cl- that People one. will have
0: a clue, though, if they have listened to previous episodes. So make Jeff happy. Go back and listen to all of our episodes <laughs> and figure out which one of will make Jeff happy.
1: <laughs> exactly. And our our poll for episode 116 has closed. We are going to be covering Ursula K. Le Guin's, The Tombs of Atuan. We're very excited about that. I would also like to give a shout out to Adam Stiers for joining us for our patron book club today. If you would like to join our Patreon, show us some support, be like, Jeff and Hoy, we really love your show. We want to support this. We want to encourage you guys to keep doing this. Then head on over, throw us a dollar a month. And by doing that, you can vote on the shows that we're covering. You can join us for the, pat- for the patron book clubs if you'd like. And I'd like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons real quick. Thank you to Eric Hicks, Eric Johnson, Richard Ruane, Trevor Stamper, Vixter, Adam Stiers, David H- uh, Dave Hotstream, Daniel J. Bishop, matt richards we really appreciate your support uh and that is all i have to say about the patreon right now all right ahoy where can folks find us right
0: if you want to give us some feedback uh, you can uh, send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com we're also on twitter at, at appendix underscore n uh if you like us please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice such as uh, apple uh, Podcasts. it does help people find us
1: And, Dak, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate having you on. Yeah, Yeah. thanks
0: for having me on. It's an honor, Dak. Uh, Let's hope to see you soon, and uh, we'll keep on pester... Well, no, we won't pester you about crawls, because everybody else is doing that already, but we will say, (laughs) 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 All right, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to us, Dak. Yeah, no problem. All right, everybody, see you in the stacks. Read on.
2: The library is closed.